Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Slate Money is brought to you by Harry's, the shaving company that offers German-engineered blades, well-designed handles, and shipping right to your door. Visit harrys.com for $5 off your first purchase with the promo code MONEY. And by Ring. With Ring Video Doorbell, you can see and speak to anyone at your door from anywhere in the world using your smartphone. Slate Money listeners get free expedited FedEx shipping when you go to ring.com slash money. With Ring Video Doorbell, you're always home. And by Wonder Capital. Invest in large-scale solar projects across the U.S. by investing in Wonder Capital's solar funds. Create an account for free at wondercapital.com slash money. That's wonder with a U. Do well and do good. Hello and welcome to the dubious values edition of Slate Money, your guide to the business and finance news of the week. And in a absolutely perfect confluence of events, it just so happens that a huge week for news in Silicon Valley has coincided with the week, kind of the best week of Slate Money ever. Because Jordan's not here? Well, Oops. partly because Jordan's not here, no, but we mainly love you, Jordan. That was a joke. Mainly because I miss not, out clearly. Not only do do we have Kathy O'Neill, the data scientist and blogger at MathBabe.org, but much more excitingly, because you know we're all kind of used to Kathy at this point. <laughs> we have for sitting in for for Jordan Weissman, the fabulous Margaret Venmachers. Margaret, say hi. Hello, Margaret. You are a partner at Andreessen Horowitz. That's right. You uh, you founded the Outcast Agency, which is the legendary Silicon Valley PR shop. That sounds so old. <laughs> but yes, that's right. You, it's you, still are, you are just a tiny bit older than Jordan Weissman. But maybe. Maybe. Um, and you have a podcast. Yes, we have our own podcast. And what's it called? It's called, it's the A16Z podcast, and it gets very wonky and nerdy at times. And it talks about all kinds of things, technology and Silicon Valley. And occasionally we'll throw in other folks like Oprah, but that's the exception. You had Oprah on your podcast? Yeah, had Oprah on the podcast. 
Holy okay. shit. I'm so downloading that one. <laughs> oh my God. The minute I walk out of here. Because Oprah and Kim Kardashian are the dream team. great kind of, you know, <laughs> celebrity entrepreneurs. I don't know. I hear Mark Maron did something interesting with the president. That worked for him. Yeah, but Mark Maron is, isn't nearly as rich as Oprah or like Jessica Alba. It seems to be Neither the, is the, president, the female so right. celebrities who, who are good at sort of making money and the ones that are culturally relevant on the internet, I suppose. That Yes, that would be it. Anyway, so we are going to talk mostly about, well, we're going to talk about values, I think, on this podcast. We're going to talk about Silicon Valley values. We're going to talk about valuations, which is a very hot topic in Silicon Valley right now, um, thanks in part to a scorching essay by venture capitalist Bill Gurley, which came out on the internet this week. And in honor of the fact, the little known fact, that Margit and I are both German citizens, we're going to talk about German values, and which are kind of in many ways opposite to Silicon Valley values, but seem to still be quite successful economically. Let's start, Margit, with the big story of the week, which is Theranos. Yes, I am not familiar with Theranos. I'm kidding. Uh, <laughs> so Theranos has been... In the news a lot for the last, I think, six to nine months, uh, primarily led by the Wall Street Journal. And the Wall Street Journal seems to have uncovered that um, the technology may not actually work. And that has gotten the attention of the FDA. And now Theranos is in big trouble. Um, and not just the FDA. The news this week is that it has gotten the attention of the SEC. Um, but first of all, we should say, what is Theranos? Or what does it purport to be? So... It purports to allow you to do um, the same level of blood testing of all kinds of uh, potential diseases, whatnot, uh, just by taking a single drop from your finger. Uh, you don't need a half an armful of blood anymore to, <laughs> be, to do your blood work. You just need a drop. This was that's good news for people like me because I faint when people take my blood. So, exactly. in fact, that's the lore of the founding story. Elizabeth Holmes uh, was sort of really deathly afraid of having blood taken, and that was her idea. And the idea, look, <laughs> I'm a pessimist because I'm German, but I'm also an optimist because I work in Silicon Valley. So I hold out hope that um, she can make it work and because the idea is good and the promise is great and it would reduce cost and lots of people can get blood tests very easily and cheaply. But things are looking pretty dark uh, right now for Theranos. Um, the the response from the company has not been very clear and convincing to all these allegations. And... Um, I think what happened to the company, just talking about what I do for a living, is the delta between the vision and the hype and the claim and all the speeches and the cover stories and whatnot, and then what you actually can deliver, uh, there's a pretty big delta. And anytime you have that, um, things can come to haunt you. So this is really what I wanted to talk about, because we've talked about Theranos on this podcast before. What we haven't talked about quite as much is the Silicon Valley culture of what I call fake it till you make it, which is what you call the delta between the claims and the reality. Every single company in Silicon Valley has that delta. They are all crushing it. They're all absolutely like having amazing success. Um, and they're all just claiming that because perception is so much of the game in Silicon Valley now. Okay, so I think Theranos is a separate case from regular Silicon Valley. And I do really believe that's true. One is 
if you talk to anybody in Silicon Valley, it's always been viewed as a complete black box. It had a tiny amount of money from Draper Fisher, I think about a dozen years ago. And then Draper Fisher has never heard any updates from the company itself. So it was the only quote unquote professional venture capital money. And that was under a million dollars. All the other investors, and there are many, are not professional investors. They're private families, rich people who believed in the promise. And then the board also doesn't consist of professional investors or domain experts in the field. You have very, very fancy names, for sure. But like, And that's very unusual for Silicon Valley. So you're saying that in a slightly more normal Silicon Valley company where you have venture-backed companies with technologists on the board, you might have a delta, but it might not be that big. Well, there are companies that completely overhype themselves. That 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 yeah, that can I was going to say that. Let's not, you know, <laughs> Kathy's like because the one <laughs> I, the one I'm thinking about right now is Zenefits, which has also recently run into trouble, and it seemed like it was this ter- terribly clever computerized way of doing benefits for companies. And this terribly clever computerized way of doing benefits for companies turns out to have been a bunch of interns basically typing them into an Excel spreadsheet. Halt, oh my please. God, that's amazing. I didn't hear that. Halt, oh, please. Oh, Margaret is going to call bullshit on that. Halt, please. Yes. <laughs> so I will disclose that we are an investor in Zenefits and we're actually a really happy investor in Zenefits. The company has found almost perfect product market fit. It's got over... 10,000 customers. The thing is working. This is not like, oh, maybe I can do this in a drop of blood. Or, like, it's a completely different situation. However, we did have a situation where, you know, both of those companies are in a regulated space, right? Um, uh, uh, Zenefits provides insurance, and that's a regulated space. And it turns out that the initial founder who came up with the idea and built it to its current size wrote a macro that automates the uh, 52-hour class that you're supposed to take to become a certified insurance broker in each state. So uh, the employees still took the test, but they cheated on, you know, sitting through the 52 hours. And that was just a boneheaded mistake, frankly. And, And you're absolutely right. And that was the thing that they're getting in a lot of regulatory hot water for. I'm talking more about the other side of things, which is the communications with insurers, which is the heart of what they do in terms of making sure that everyone who's in a company is insured by a certain insurer, is not sort of scalably automated in the way that you would imagine a Silicon Valley company to be. It turns out that it's really just humans doing that so work. So can we, can we just back up, like go up one level yeah, sure. here? Because I feel like what you just said, what I want to go back to, yeah. is that there's the the companies that are trying to sort of disrupt mm-hmm. heavily regulated spaces and claim to maybe hype beyond what they can actually do. And then there's sort of sort of standard Silicon Valley companies that are not really totally regulated and hype what they're going to do. And I think what you're doing is distinguishing between those two kinds of companies. Well, no, I'm distinguishing between companies that um, where, you know, you may have a problem on the regulatory side, which was the case in Zenefits. And Zenefits, by the way, just to complete that story, they self-reported the issue to the states and they are now actively working with the states. The founder agreed to resign. So we took basically said like, all right, we get it. Like we're, we're going to fix this. And um, David Sachs, who was the CEO at the time, luckily is in place and he's doing that. That's a, that's a very company specific issues. Theranos is a different issue. The 
general issue of like fake it till you make it. Like, look, when you're building a company and you have an idea that is disruptive, say, I don't know, I might rent out my couch uh, to people. And I think that's a fantastic idea. You're going to sound nuts. You need to paint a proper vision because you need to attract money. You need to act, attract employers. You want people like you to write about those things, right? So you do need to paint the vision and that will inevitably be bigger than where you are at the current state. If that delta becomes like five miles wide, you set yourself up for trouble. And that is something that some Fil Silicon Valley companies do uh, better or or not, depending on the case. I mean, I used to work at a place called Risk Metrics, which is mm -hmm. but the, not at all Silicon Valley, right? right? It's firmly like financial services. We used to like, and we they, they still do, like look at financial risk of portfolios of big banks and, and hedge funds. And they faked it till they made it. Like, I remember talking to the original salespeople who said, you know, we were demoing this to potential customers and it was a screenshot, but we pretended it was live. You know, that kind of thing. Isn't that just what businesses do? And yeah, this is this is also, I, I mean, I, this is one of my favorite founding stories of Microsoft is that Bill Gates basically sold an operating system to IBM, which did not exist. And then once they paid him, he's like, oh, now I guess I need to write this thing. Well, another way to frame this is uh, what we call um, MVP. It's not most valuable player. It's minimum viable product. So you start with like, here's the here are the minimal functions that you need to have to get into market. Now you're telling your customers, Mr. CIO or whoever it is, right? In the fullness of time, we are going to be the platform that allows you to secure your entire environment, soup to nuts. And you start with a minimum viable product that is very useful. It's usually cheaper than the competition. The competition tends to ignore you because you're like, ah, those little guys. But you build the product and lo and behold, eventually you get there if, if it works. So, so maybe the agile development aspect of like modern Silicon Valley companies has sort of taken this like to the uh, uh, like higher level. So the thing which Margaret said there, which really resonated with me was when she says you take I'm it to so the shocked. CIO and that reminded me of the famous story of Stuart what's his name? Butterfield. Butterfield. There you go. Stuart Butterfield who who basically he, he has this company called Slack. We all love Slack. Um and he said that he raised around at a billion dollar valuation, not mainly because he needed the money, but because once you raise around at a billion dollar valuation, then the CIOs take you more seriously. And what he's doing is he's selling to enterprises. He's selling software to companies. And the companies are that much more reassured that he's not going to disappear in the puff of smoke tomorrow it, because it is, he's, he's yeah, a unicorn. It's, it's sort of a new form. Enterprise software companies used to go public much sooner along with everyone else, right? You you had raised like $30 million and then you go public, right, with some uh, million of dollars in revenue. And that was reassuring to a CIO buying the software because there's financials to review and whatnot. And sort of this billion-dollar valuation, when it's deserved is uh, a way to reassure CIOs to go like, oh, this company is going to stick around. It has lots of customers and so on and so forth. Okay, so that brings us on to the valuation part oh, of damn. the... <laughs> <laughs> it's the... It's the perfect segue to part two. Um, before we move on to part two, Harry's razors... Oh, you know what? Harry's razors are German, in a way, just like exactly. just like you the and I, Margaret. Right? Well, the blades are. They're made in a German factory. They have five different blades... And it's super engineered, super precise 
razors, which are made in Germany and cost a fraction of the razor blades that you buy in your local corner store. And you, every time you go there, you're like, how much? So stop saying that. Go to harrys.com. This is H-A-R-R-Y-S dot com. Don't be trying to run out for blades locked behind plexiglass cases at the drugstore. They'll just automatically appear at your home if you buy a little subscription. You will love them. And I know that you will love them because you have this special offer, which gives you $5 off the $15 starter kit, which makes the starter kit... Kathy, what's 15 minus 5? You're the mathematician. 10. Ten. I'm so She's on top brilliant. of that. Did you see how fast that was? That was that was, that was laser, laser fast. Whoa. $10. You get three of these amazing five-blade German-engineered razors. You get this incredible razor handle, which doesn't slip. You get the moisturizing shave cream. So you go to harrys.com, H-A-R-R-Y-S.com, and make sure you use the code SLATEMONEY at checkout. So I'm glad we're talking about unicorns because that's what I want to talk about. Um, you know, there are 80 unicorns, again, are billion dollar companies that are privately owned that are valued at billion dollars or more. There are Did you 80 just of use them. the word valuated? I meant to say evaluated. Evaluated or just valued. That have a valuation up. Okay, so many ways to say that. Thank you, guys. <laughs> Sometime early in 2015, somebody counted them, and there were 80 of them. And now there are 229 of them. Yeah, that was Dan Primack and Aaron Griffith at Fortune who kind of popularized this whole unicorn idea. They had 80 unicorns at the beginning of 2015. That, by the end of 2015, was over 200. Now, who knows? Are you guys really? saying that's too many? I don't think it's enough. You don't think it's enough? Wow. Okay, so there's going to be a conversation going on here. Anyway, this guy, Gurley, wrote this, as you said, this essay, which we'll have on our um, page. Um, and he's he's talking about the anxiety around the, the, the valuations and the financing of these unicorns. Um, his theory is that you have all these high valuations, these high burn rates, but you don't have any IPOs. So all these people are sort of rich on paper, but they might not ever actually get that cash, and they're super nervous. Margaret, do you agree? So... I think it's hard to make a blanket statement because these things are very, very company specific. There are companies that, you know, in a normal world would definitely be public. And I actually think it would be great if more companies... What is not normal about this world? In, because there's so, many, there's so few IPOs. And why are there so few IPOs? I think you have uh, various, you know, regulations that made it a bit pretty onerous for people for companies to be publicly you traded. You mean oxley Yes. Sarbanes-Oxley, Oxley. Can you explain that? Why? Okay, so I see. I think I think the Sarbox argument is it it doesn't hold a lot of water. In that we've seen no shortage of IPOs from outside Silicon Valley. Well, can you explain what the argument is first? So the argument, the Sarbox argument, is is simply that there are now a bunch of reporting requirements for public companies and Silicon Valley companies. far too precious snowflakes to be spending time worrying about <laughs> reporting requirements. Is that is, do you do you think that's why people it's are more, not going IPO? It's more expensive. There are other reporting requirements. You also have things where people can short sell against you when you're a smaller company. It's really hard to withstand that kind of stuff. So it's it's been hard. I do agree with you. I think more companies should go public and kind of man up or Oh, girl up. up. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I I totally agree with that. I mean, it sounds like, just to somebody who's skeptical of everything that you guys are talking about, <laughs> it sounds so, so suspicious that they're like, oh, we don't want to actually have to report our accounting. Right? Doesn't that just say, like, we want to be able to hide fraud? That's another way of saying that. Uh, and famously, oh. there's a whole bunch of companies in Silicon Valley 
who and people are investing hundreds of millions of dollars in these companies without any real visibility into the financials. I mean, the Theranos example comes back just because it's in the news, but there are dozens and dozens of other ones where investors are buying a story. They're not actually buying any detailed financials. Okay, wait, wait, wait. So the way valuations are set, and we should talk about what's actually a private company at this point uh, anymore uh, separately, but the way valuations are set, you know, initially it's really a bet on a person and an idea. And hopefully that person matches the idea because they have some expertise, personal experience, technology experience, whatnot. So that's the initial money. Then subsequent rounds are valued based on what has a company achieved? So you get credit for what you've achieved. And what do you think is the potential, you know, in the fullness of time, if the company succeeds? That's how valuations are set. I don't know about Theranos. I will assert that that is an aberration. I don't know what access they had to information. I think we vet companies pretty closely. And once you do B and C and D rounds, there's a lot to evaluate. There are numbers to evaluate. Now, I think, (laughs) I don't know who's to blame for this. We should probably find out who's to blame for this. It's always fun. But um, if you are a company that is and has a valuation of multiple billions, and particularly if you take public money, you're essentially not really a privately held company anymore. And um, by public money, you mean pen- fidelity yes, and exactly. the big mutual exactly. funds. Exactly. And as we've all seen, and you know, some CEOs on the more naive end were surprised by this, like they they rate you just like they would rate you in the public stock market, right? And so that is happening. And you know, I think it makes people nostalgic of a time that I remember because I've been around a long time. Remember how people used to announce that they funded and they would never disclose valuations? And then somebody broke that rule and said, like, but we're valued at a billion dollars. And then they would leak it because they didn't want to have to say it themselves. And then they would publicly brag about it. And now they're like, well, if it doesn't go de- up all the time. <laughs> so there were, two, there were two big issues here which were raised by Bill Gurley in his essay. Um, and one of them you've just brought up, which is this question of A and B and C and D rounds and the idea that every single round you do needs to be done at a higher valuation from the round before, or at least the same. It can never go down. There's this incredible stigma around what are known as down rounds. Well, so that's the hope. (laughs) The hope is that the company works and therefore you get credit for what you've done and you you get a valuation that acknowledges that. There's no guarantee. Well, but Gurley goes further than that. He says that in order to uh, keep this dream alive, that the valuation never, ever goes down, um, they go into this sort of manufactured high valuations. Um, These things called dirty character. terms. Yeah, exactly. Well, These so things called dirty term sheets, whereby, actually, Felix is one of your favorite topics. Is, it, 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 this is one of my favorite topics. But I want to, just before we move on to dirty terms, right. uh, I just want to stick on this stigma about down rounds. Um, is it not the case, Margaret, that, venture capitalists and entrepreneurs both um, really bend over backwards to try and avoid down rounds in Silicon Valley? Look, I don't want to talk about every other venture capitalist. We are in the business of trying to figure out what are the best ideas and if they work, can they be a home run? And in our business, the way the the way the venture business works is a lot of them fail. Like a quarter of them, you lose your shirt or part of your shirt. <laughs> you know, another quarter of them, you don't lose all of your money, but they also fail. And then you have this pocket of like another 30% that is like, ah, eh, 
1x, 1.5x, whatnot. And then the really good firms, they have the big, big win that makes up for all of that and gets you in a whole new wardrobe. So basically what you're saying is that if you're not just on that hockey stick, then there's no point in funding you in the first place. Well, so what the uh, venture capital firm and other investors need to be very disciplined about is like, okay, so once you've invested, if it's not work, you should not continue to fund the company because you're not actually helping an entrepreneur. It's like, how do we want to do this if it's not working? You want to spend four years of your life doing it or eight, right? So you need to be very disciplined about that. I will, however, point out because you guys seem to assert that it has to go up no matter what. Facebook had a down round. Google had layoffs, right? And those companies are, I think, okay. They, they, they do pretty okay. I think the problem with all of this is some of it, and Bill has some really good points in the essay, some of it is ego-driven. Some of it is like, what do you want to tell the employees? And the good CEOs, they create an actual corporate culture. Since we're talking about values and culture, they create actual corporate culture that can withstand a negative news cycle or an adverse event, like so a layoff or can, whatnot. Glenn, let's talk about that, though. Because another th- point he makes, which I think is really excellent, is that most investors don't have enormous, port- diverse portfolios of these, uh, you know, these startup investments, like you guys do. But most of them, most people don't. So they... they they have a few losers, and they really are worried about this down valuation. Wait, they don't ha- have the twenty five percent that are doing really well. well. When you say most investors, you mean most investors in private companies? Yeah, he's he's making the point that there's it's not that easy. So there's no like basket of startups you uh, can buy. Because I feel right? like I I think he was making that point mostly in terms of the employees and the founders. Well, that's certainly true. The, the given yeah, employees those people in one only, place. They have all of their eggs in one basket. And for the venture from the and this is a definite misalignment of incentives. That as far as the venture capitalist is concerned, they want to see, as Margaret just explained, they want to see a company which is on a rocket ship and the minute it doesn't look like it's a rocket ship anymore, they just want to cut loose because they're only interested yeah. in in trying to fund the things which are going to go 100x. I did not say that. That's a very extreme version because there is no straight rocket ship line for any company. Like, um, name any company, they've always had a hard time. But still, there's a bunch of companies which maybe could have become perfectly decent, mid-sized sustainable concerns where they were encouraged by their venture capital backers to invest in growth instead and they failed because they overextended themselves is that not the case well i think most so the way that silicon valley currently works is that founders are by and large in control they get to actually make that decision we do recommend but we we don't get to make that decision it is true that if you take venture money this is what you sign up for. So if you want to if you want to have stability, if you want to run a nice company, like don't take venture money. Venture money is designed to hopefully produce an outsized exit, which includes needing a lot of money to get there along the way and signing up for a lot of growth. That's just what this business that's what that's what software does. Okay. And now let's just talk very briefly about these dirty term sheets. Um, this is a way of, if you were just selling common stock to venture capitalists, you might have a valuation of 400 million, but because you have ratchets and liquidation preferences and convertible terms and various other weird things, which are all invented by this law firm called Wilson Sonsini, um, they suddenly you can manufacture a valuation of more or less anything you like. You can manufacture that $2 billion valuation um, just by basically putting a huge number of debt-like characteristics into the equity. Um, 
Is it the case, and it certainly seems from my perspective to be the case, that there is pressure on founders to do exactly that and to create these dirty term sheets just to be able to get those high valuations? Okay, so uh, yes, I think some founders feel that pressure maybe in their own head. It may be driven by, I want to be in this club so I can keep hiring and all that kind of stuff. We hate that. I just want to throw in from the perspective of the employee that it's also really important for the founders to keep their best employees. Absolutely. And a lot of those employees are paid partially in unvested options or, 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 or just vested in, options. Or in common stock. Or in common is, stock. Which and, puts you at the bottom of the cap table and is a horrible position right. to be in. So, so if, in other words, if they could have a down round that's down enough, then those best employees were like, up, jumping ship. So it's not just the worry of the on the venture side, it's also the worry on the employee side. Well, so if you want to build a good company for the long term, like th- the number one problem in Silicon Valley is talent. There is no bigger problem. There may be news cycles about, you know, Bill Gurley writes a memo or Theranos is in the news. The number one conversation day in and day out is about the talent war. So you don't actually want to create a situation where employees are incented to run. So right? why is it then that Silicon Valley is so much so is built so much on the idea of paying people in equity. So, so, so if you are an employee in Silicon Valley, you are you're pretty well compensated by any stand by relative standards. You mean in cash compensation? In cash compensation, right? So almost you, enough to afford an apartment. Well, we have a housing shortage. Just a whole nother topic. Don't get me even started. But like you, like this is not a you know this is not a horrible job. This is not slave labor. You get a good cash compensation. And then you get like this potential booster rocket or lottery ticket or whatever. Any employee who enters Silicon Valley and who wants to game the system saying like, I only want to work at a company that will get me that outcome should just leave because there is a good chance that they won't. But they are also well compensated. And you can also make the decision to take a job at a publicly traded company. And you get more cash compensation, but you don't get the potential of this lottery ticket giving you a huge boost. Well, I've I've been hearing from a bunch of people that there is a culture, especially among early stage startups, to really skimp on things like health insurance and maternity leave. benefits and maternity leave and 401k matching and the kind of things that young employees should be asking for. And, you know, you throw them a bunch of free beer and stock options instead, which is a lot cheaper for the company. Or maybe even M&Ms. I've seen people you, paid off in so M&Ms. There's a long list of stuff I, I don't like that does exist in Silicon Valley companies. Uh, coconut water, there's lots of M&Ms, there's foosball tables, sometimes there's a masseuse. So I was just like, yeah, all the employees that are there for that reason, I, I, I don't feel sorry for. It's just like, <laughs> I really don't. But do you think... But do you I feel think sorry for is, them because it's, I, I feel sorry. I feel what? sorry for the culture. This is bad for the culture, it's the right? Culture because culture that's terrible. What, yeah. what happens is you wind up with a bunch of programmers, basically twenty-something men who don't have families and who can cope with that kind of who, who can like cope with kind, the coconut water. Well, who who feel really? like who feel like it's more important <laughs> for them to have a foosball table than it is to have health insurance. You know, and and so, by the way, having been been like the oldest person at a company like that with actual children in my life it just doesn't make sense to be there right and you're, and you're trying to talk to these young women saying like do you have plans for your life oh no i'm working 16 hours a day like i'm sorry like i, I don't i don't completely agree that we should not feel sorry for this generation of people that somehow feel like they're going to get this they're going to be that lucky person that gets the you know gets a payout they're probably not so actually i mean i had a small i had a 
small-ish agency with no VC funding and no coconut water, but a 401k plan. So like I... I so you did it right. I hear where you're coming and, from. And, and also you had mostly female employees. This is very gendered, isn't but it? But I have... I don't know. But I will say a lot of these companies do have like normal benefits. They may not have fancy benefits. Again, there is Google, there's Facebook. There are any number of bigger companies that will fall all over themselves and let you freeze your eggs and have parental leave and do all kinds of things. I mean, you you get to make that choice. Okay, so we are going to move on to the most employee-friendly place in the world. Um, just as soon as I thank our other sponsor, Ring, which is a little security device which is cleverly disguised as a doorbell. This is this is such a classic sort of Silicon Valley pitch, but this is a real thing. If you go to ring.com, it's a video doorbell. It's connected to the internet. It's connected to your phone. Someone rings the doorbell and then you answer the doorbell and the person ringing the doorbell has no idea whether you're in the house or whether you're in Kuala Lumpur. So I... It's pretty cool. And so then, you know, you answer the door and they say, oh, well, there's someone home. So they don't burgle your house. Um, they have motion detection. So it will alert you even if they don't ring the doorbell. Um, it's very easy to install. You can use a battery. You can wire it up. And you, dear listeners, can get free expedited FedEx shipping if you go to ring.com slash money and just sleep a little bit safer when you're not at home because you know that you're being protected by this like clever little doohickey. It's ring.com slash money and be home, at least as far as any person who has malign intent towards your possessions is concerned. Um, okay, I'm going to, we're going to finish off this values concept by, by talking a little bit about a subject which I've wanted to talk about for a while, and I, I'm taking advantage of Margaret's presence here to talk about Germany, which is this incredible economic success story. They're a huge exporter, not only to other European countries, but to the entire world. Um, you know, they make Harry's razors and all manner of like great manufactured goods. They have software companies which are successful. There's a tech hub in Berlin, which is happening right now. Um, and at the same time, they have a very different relationship towards founding and running companies. It's not the the balance between labor and capital seems much more balanced. You get worker representation on boards. The workers don't feel like they need to be working all the time and placing their job at the center of their lives. You know, I I know I have cousins and I have friends who are in the technology industry in. Germany, who seem to be able to go on holiday for, you know, 10 weeks a year, just like all other Germans. How That's is strange, how right? is this possible, Margaret? Well, so I will say, I think part of German success has been, it's been the beneficiary of a war that it caused, sadly. Um, Germany was in a rubble, and because of the support of the rest of the world, it has actually benefited and created a great economic engine. I think that that has worked in its favor. It also doesn't have the ability to rely on lots of natural resources. There's no oil, whatnot. So I think it's it's turned that into an advantage by becoming great at engineering, particularly mechanical engineering and whatnot. It's it's just it's just fantastic. Now I think culturally, it also has a a pretty solid education system, but 
um, Peter Thiel told me the statistic. It has it has as many scientists as the U.S. and 10% of the entrepreneurial activity as the U.S. That's just shocking, right? And I think that largely that's a cultural difference because Germany tends to be more on, focused on being slightly conformist, stable, reliable. There's not as much room for disruption and going against the grain. In fact, one of the reasons I'm here and not there is because I don't think that particularly suits my personality. Um, so it, it has many uh, advantages, and it certainly has shown an interest in becoming having its own Silicon Valley-style hub and whatnot. And all the Germans come visit our office and whatnot. Uh, interestingly, all the German car manufacturers have come to visit us because they want to know what's about to happen to them because it looks like Silicon Valley may be taking on the car industry. And that has them slightly bent out of shape. I just think, Especially now that they can't cheat on emissions tests. That, I, I don't even get me started on that. They finally announced they're going to do a buyback, which that was my first reaction when that scandal broke. Before I was like, just do the buyback, yeah. fix the consumer's problem. And like, it was a year and like no owner had heard anything from them. This is not Germany's strong suit to, to deal with things like that on the fly. So it has a lot of pluses, um, but I think it's going to have a hard time being in the disruption business like Silicon but, Valley. But is. the fact is that you don't need to be in that business. The, my point in many ways is that Germany has done extremely well for itself despite not being in this disruption business, that it has a bunch of well-paid, happy workers who take more holiday than you can possibly imagine I, every year. You know, I don't have a study to quote, but I'm not sure the German population is particularly happy. They certainly work less than almost anyone else in Europe. Yeah, well, if that's a value, then yes, sure. And they have greater GDP per capita than any other country in Europe. So Absolutely, absolutely. So and it's, nice, been a, it's an interesting combination there. And they've been a great beneficiary of the, um, of the euro. It's not really European Union, but certainly the the, the currency is is. Yeah, they, they do have an artificially weak currency, which has helped them since the introduction of the euro. Although they were doing just fine before the introduction Absol of the Abs euro as well. Absolutely. Now, we this may be a very self serving point of view, but I think you know if you look around the world and everybody's on an iPhone all the time, right? Like, software is invading increasingly every sector, and that will happen no matter where you live and who you are. And I do think that represents a threat for any country, nation, company that doesn't know how to embrace that. So if you take, for example, the car industry, you know, there are, there's, uh, you know, if you told me that a, there would be a new exciting car company coming out of the United States, I would have laughed at you, right? And now we have Tesla and then you have Apple, Google, you have any number of startups that are all working on the car, autonomous driving, full-on car vehicles, fleets, whatnot. That will freak Germany out. I mean, that's that's you know that that's our crown jewel, and I think that's how happening. much of the how much of the economy depends on cars in Germany. Um, I don't know the number, but a good chunk. I think the more important part psychologically it's incredibly important like when the Volkswagen thing happened I would call my friends and my family in Germany they couldn't even talk about it wow it's so traumatizing that you know the thing that you count on from Germany is reliability high quality uh, you know integrity fo fo yeah. integrity following the rule of law a very well established court system all that kind of stuff and here they are on their admissions seating and with Germany 
was the country that started the Green Party, started like a global movement <laughs> to not do this kind of stuff. So it's completely traumatizing. And it is, you know, the folks, Fergan, it's the people's car. It's the, it's the, I mean, as, as Margaret says, it, the percentage of the German economy, which is made up by the auto industry is much less important than the percentage of the German psyche that is made up by the, the fact that they have... The Autobahn, like the whole, like we have Mercedes. rest stops that are fully equipped. You should see a German rest stop, like it's a whole thing. <laughs> so, I mean, yeah, so you guys are German, so you have this sense of Germanness, but I'm not German. So I think of Germany as a state in the European Union. You know, I do. I but think it of is this, a very different in, state in than that sense, France. Of course, say. it's very different. And what's but the difference? When I talk about, but I'm just saying that when I think about, about the economy of Germany, I think about it as part of the economy of Europe. And if you look wider, if you like widen your lens, you're like, well, there's also Greece. You know, it's not as it can a, be more different. It's yeah. It, well, it's more different, but it's also part of it, right? Aren't they connected? In no, a, not really. I mean, it, there's, really. there's a few so, transfers, but one of the reasons that the European Union or the European Monetary Union failed was precisely because they're not connected. They, so the, the, they created a currency, but not an actual like United States of Europe, right? So it's not, it's not fair for me to say like Germany's economy is not a success because Greece's economy is not a success. No, that's not fair at all no. because Germany was a success long before the European Union came along. Exactly. And it wasn't a success because of Greece in any way. It was a success because they because of Germany. Because of its value system. And because it really did. But I mean, after the Second World War, most of Germany was destroyed. So it got to rebuild, which created a lot of industry and productivity and wealth and all, all that kind of stuff, right? So these countries, this is hard, I think, to really appreciate unless you go there and spend a lot of time there. Germany is very different from France. It's very different from Holland. And those are pretty much the same. But then you go to other countries. And this is really, really different. And you see this play out in the refugee crisis, right? We, yes. could, we cannot come up with a unified strategy for what we're doing with those folks who, by the way, you know, I think of Andy Grove, who just passed away. He came as a result of a refugee crisis from Hungary in, in the 1950s, right? And, like, we just seem unable to solve this problem. And Germany has tried to show leadership, but, like, it's it's wobbly. We're really talking about, like, the European currency union in the past tense at this point, it seems like. But no, it's, I think it's going to stick around. One thing that's been great, I think, is mobility for employees, right? So if you, and that has helped the UK and Germany, I think, because if you're, if you're a, um, a young uh, person in Europe, you can work anywhere, right? And a lot of people, a lot of the uh, uh, successful students out of the great Paris universities, they go straight to London. They're not hanging out in London, I can, I can attest to this, is full of French people. And this is the this thing, has been good for the quality of food in London. <laughs> yes, uh, which which needed some enhancement. The thing that could be interesting for countries in Europe if they want to create a some sort of flywheel to get Silicon Valley style activity going, which they all come visit and they want to do this. There are limitations in the United States, so we have like the the three letter agencies like the FAA and all those kinds of things and innovation becomes difficult there. So the UK is doing something very smart. Cameron is trying to create an environment that is very friendly to fintech companies. So if you're a fintech entrepreneur, it's all of a sudden attractive to go there. So rather what, than So to, to, to close the loop here a little bit from the beginning of the podcast where you were talking about how companies like Xenophits and Theranos are in regulated industries. There is no more regulated industry in the United States than finance. They, finance is regulated to the eyeballs, and 
a large part of disruption in general is regulatory arbitrage that you do you build a company on the on the edges of a regulated industry which exactly. is not regulated and then you get to do things that the regulated incumbents can't do and then you grow that way and as you say one of david cameron's bright ideas is to have a very light touch regulatory regime for financial um, technology companies in the uk what could possibly go wrong well you know if we're going to talk about bringing silicon valley and Kathy is very skeptical of the Europe. whole idea to start with. <laughs> yeah, instead of yeah, instead of only talking about bringing Silicon Valley culture to Europe, can we also think about bringing German culture to the United States? Yes, Margaret, is there not a case to be made to start bringing a little bit of that German culture? Good education, wor- worker education? representation I, on I'm boards. Here. I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> You're not yeah. making the case very well, though. <laughs> do, 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 do you think that workers should be on boards? I don't know that the board thing, frankly, is a big issue. I don't have an issue with it, but I, I, I would say I'm agnostic on it. I, how much, how much vacation do you think that people should get in general, workers per year? Uh, I think two weeks is uh, so. If you have a two week vacation policy, which I think a lot of American companies do, you're just going to have a lot more churn. And there are companies that are okay with that. And then there are companies that would greatly benefit from having people stay with you for the long term and build a career. And I think two, I think some people just change jobs here because they're just burnt out. And so that's messed up. We should fix so you that. have to the two weeks is minimum. Is that what I hear you saying? No, I think that's what the minimum is, is here in the United States. And I think that's messed up. So I, I remember when I ran Outcast, we gave six weeks of vacation. That was one of the big perks that we gave. And is that the same at Andreessen Horowitz? And Andreessen Horowitz, we get three weeks. Which is but too low. No, I think that's actually fine. But we, so what works well for us is we're closed for the week of Thanksgiving and we're closed for the week of Christmas. So I think that works. And I love that because that is truly when you unplug because there's a social contract that we're all unplugging, right? Because it's not like you're on vacation, the world keeps moving. It's a lot easier to go on vacation when you know that everyone else isn't working like while you're on the beach and right. you're just going to have a week's worth of work to catch up on when you get back. My favorite was IDE Shah. We didn't have one. So that just meant like the little people never went on vacation yeah. and the managing directors yeah, took this, off entire August. There's some of that modern stuff that I, you know, there's this fallacy. I think one of the companies in Silicon Valley says like, you, you can do whatever you want. Netflix. I, yes. And I think that can very easily create this environment where you just don't feel like you can. Yeah. Right. So unless the culture at the top you know, and, yeah. and again, well, there, those there, are all values ex- questions and culture yeah. questions that if they're not sh- demonstrated at the top, you can do whatever, po- you can have whatever policy you want. Like Cheryl is a good example, right? Cheryl's like, I'm going to have dinner with my kids. And so it's okay for people to go home and have dinner with their kids. Like, is that woman slow or a slouch or a slacker at Facebook? No way, right? But she's, she's, she's you demonstrating. To, you have to set the example. And she take sets the, the example and says like, you know, be with your family, that's okay, and kick ass when you're at the job. I haven't noticed that happening at too many Silicon Valley companies. Although it is starting. In a couple of pockets, you have these minimum vacation policies, um, precisely because, you know, even when you have two weeks vacation, which is not nearly enough, people don't even take that. Right. Okay. We have the numbers round coming up. Margaret is smiling because she has a number on a piece of paper. Um, I do need to thank the third sponsor of Slate Money this week is Wonder, which is a way to invest in solar power. 
which is a good thing. Uh, it's Wonder Capital, W-U-N-D-E-R, Wonder Capital, allows individuals to invest in solar projects across the U.S. So the businesses, you basically fund the businesses which are installing solar PV panels, and then the businesses repay the loans to Wonder. The Wonder repays the money to you. America becomes more sustainable. What's not to love? Um, you can get apparently up to eleven percent returns on this, which is pretty good in a zero interest rate environment. Um, so you go to Wonder Capital. That's whether you remember wondercapital.com slash money. Wondercapital.com slash money and start funding solar panels if you have a bit of money to spare, risk capital to spare. Um, numbers round, Kathy. Yes, I got a great number, um, 400. Uh, so there was a 2013 Fed study that sh- that found that almost half of Americans, 47% of Americans, wouldn't be able to to cover a $400 um, cost if it just showed up, like their car broke down or something happened. They would not be able to cover $400 without borrowing or selling something that they owned. Um, that just goes to show you 47% how broke America is, actually. How financially fragile. It's not that they couldn't borrow that money necessarily, but they would have to. That's they didn't have it on hand. one step away from a catastrophe. Yep. I, I have a one of my like long-term secular trend numbers, which came out of a story in the New York Times, which I was like, really? Wow. Um, there are now no gas stations in downtown Manhattan, which I don't think anyone is shedding too many tears about. But there is a much bigger nationwide trend here. That A decade ago, there were 300,000 gas stations in the U.S. That, and in the space of 10 years, that number has come down to less than 140,000. Hmm. We've lost more than half of America's gas stations just in a decade. Wow. Why? Margaret, want to take a guess? I have no idea. People I'm, are I'm not, not driving less, right? I'm not. No. In, nope. Vehicle miles traveled have stopped rising, but they haven't really started falling. But I think cars are becoming a bit more fuel efficient. Um, but I feel there's something else going on here. I think there's a... Well, property prices in Manhattan. I think, yeah, I think gas stations may are just less economic than the alternative for the land a lot of the time. Yeah, oh, that's right. I have a mushy number. I love mushy numbers, Margaret. It's 6.24 million, and that is the number of tweets on Prince as of 8.30 last night. Oh, uh, oh, when doves cry. Can we play that on the way out? Prince was my musical Prince, and he actually didn't care for the internet, but then he almost broke it last night. You can stream Prince's music only on Tidal. Is that so right? That's that's correct. That's the artist-friendly um streaming service i had a piece on the internet this week about how prince when he left warner brothers basically made a very conscious decision that he is not going to go for reach he was not going to go for money he was just going to maximize his artistic integrity and his glitter and the purple and rest in moves. peace prince um that with with that mushiness um that's it for the show this week thank you for listening to slate money thank you to audrey quinn the producer and steve lichtai and andy bowers the executive producers all of the panoply podcasts can be found at itunes.com slash panoply write to us at slate money at slate.com but most of all thank you very very much to the one and only margaret venmachers this is really special by the way it is not common for 
Margaret to to come out and speak in her own voice. She's normally behind the scenes when you get the people like Mark Hendrickson and Ben Horowitz and all the rest of them. This is the woman who's really the brains of the company. Great to have you, Margaret. It's awesome to have you. It's great to be here. We'll talk to you next week on Slate Money. Slate Money is brought to you by Betterment. It's time to take control of your financial future, and Betterment is the largest independent robo-advisor. This automated investing service serves over 150,000 customers. They manage over $4 billion for people just like you. It's never too late to save for retirement or other financial goals, and Betterment has changed the industry by making investing easier and cheaper. You can get more information and up to six months of automated investing free when you go to betterment.com slash slate money. That's betterment.com slash slate money. Betterment, investing made better. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply.